Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Update on Rare Sarcomas. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care um, and many other sarcoma organizations um, and um, also many other cancer organizations as well. And um, we are delighted to have so many of you on the call today. Um, we have over 250 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have um, a number of participants from international countries, from uh, Canada, India, Portugal, South Africa, United Arab Emirates, and United Kingdom. So really a bit of a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Um, this program today is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Saenko, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have just the best speakers on today's program, and I want um, us to move into that. But before we do that, um, we are going to do a brief polling. Um, there will be two questions that um, Norm is going to ask. It's going to be asked both of those of you who are online and those of you who are on the telephone as well. So I'm going to turn this over to Norma. The reason we're doing the polling is to see what you know coming into the program. And then at the very end, we'll ask you two more questions similar to see if you've, there's any what you've learned from the program itself. So they're very and they're yes, no questions. So, so stay tuned, Norma. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain on the line as we would like to conduct a brief polling session. Once the question and responses are read, we'll ask that you choose the appropriate responding response using your telephone keypad. Did you discuss your pathology report with your healthcare team? Press one for yes or two for no. Just one moment while we tabulate the results. And our second question, do you talk about your treatment, side effects, and pain with your healthcare team? Press one for yes or two for no. Um, one moment while we tabulate the results. And Dr. Messner, back to you. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you all for participating in this brief poll. And now we go right into the program. So we have wonderful speakers. And our first speaker today is Dr. Jonathan Trent. Dr. Trent is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Clinical Research, Director of the Sarcoma Medical Research Program, Department of Medicine, Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Miami, Miller School of Medicine. And Dr. Trent will be presenting an overview of rare sarcomas, signs and symptoms, and the importance of the pathology report and where you are diagnosed and treated. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Trent. Thank you for the kind introduction, Carolyn, and I'd like to say hi to everybody and thank you for participating in this program. I, all of the speakers really are passionate about caring for our patients with sarcoma 
and um, I'll be discussing a little bit of an introduction, and one of the questions I often get is, what is a sarcoma? So a sarcoma is really um, a type of cancer that's different than the common types of cancer that are often called carcinomas. So when somebody talks about breast cancer, they're generally talking about breast carcinoma as opposed to a sarcoma. Sarcomas are different for several reasons. Um, sarcomas arise deeper in the body. They arise in deeper tissues such as blood vessels, cartilage, nerve tissue, bones, fatty tissue, um, in, any of these types of deeper tissues as opposed to the lining cells like the lining of the GI tract or the lining of the airways that smoke comes into contact when somebody smokes would give rise to a carcinoma. Sarcomas arise from those deeper tissues that I mentioned. Sarcomas are also different than many of the carcinomas because there's so many different types. If you go to the pathology textbooks, there's over 200 different types of sarcoma um, that could arise in an individual. These often get named by the pathologists by the normal tissue that they might look like. For instance, if a, if a um, sarcoma has the appearance of a blood vessel or even forms cancerous blood vessels, it might be called an angiosarcoma. On the other hand, if the sarcoma contains fatty tissue that has turned into cancer, it would be called a liposarcoma. So, um, this, and this goes on and on with osteosarcoma, leiomyosarcoma. All of these uh, sarcomas generally have names that the pathologists give them similar to a normal tissue. Uh, but there's many that are just named by, for instance, a scientist or researcher such as Ewing sarcoma. Um, anyway, sarcomas are different also in that they're very rare. For instance, if you consider, again, breast cancer carcinoma, there's maybe almost 200,000 patients diagnosed each year, as opposed to sarcoma in the United States last year. There were about almost maybe 15,000 only patients diagnosed each year. And remember, these are over 200 different types. For any individual type of sarcoma, there may be at most a few thousand patients diagnosed each year in the entire United States. So it's, it's a very, very rare cancer. It's also different from the common carcinomas because many of these sarcomas can arise almost anywhere in the body. The most common site by far is an upper extremity or lower extremity. Maybe about half of, of patients with sarcoma may get uh, the, their limbs affected. But these can also arise in the head and neck area, in the chest, abdomen, pelvis, um, and so so very different than, for instance, colon cancer, because you know colon cancer is always going to arise in the colon. So it's it's very very challenging um, entity, and we really rely very heavily on our pathologists. In fact, there's a fair amount of data that supports this. For instance, when a patient has their tumor tissue reviewed um, by a community oncologist who's not experienced in sarcoma, the diagnosis is changed about 20-25% of the time when it's subsequently reviewed by an expert sarcoma pathologist. So I generally recommend 
that patients have their pathology reviewed um, by an expert pathologist at a sarcoma center like uh, one of the ones um, that we are members of today. Uh, the, the speakers today, we all work within sarcoma centers, and we rely heavily on the pathologist because in order to determine the appropriate surgery, whether to use radiation, what type of chemotherapy, we really need to have a firm understanding of the type of sarcoma it is. And so that really is the building block of all subsequent therapy is the diagnosis. We also rely on the pathologist to help us understand what is driving the sarcoma. Sarcomas, like other cancers, arise from a normal cell. At some point, that normal cell turns into a cancer cell. Some type of switch gets turned on that sends a signal to that tumor cell to split into two, and then four, and then eight, 16, 32, and next thing you know, there's a, a large mass. And this switch is often occurs at the DNA level through a mutation. Those mutations and other events called translocations or deletions, there are a number of different sarcomas in which there's one solitary event that takes place that turns that normal cell into a cancer cell. For instance, in gastrointestinal stromal tumor, or GIST, a mutation in a gene called KIT flips the switch on and turns that normal cell into a cancer cell that can divide, it can spread. And um, that switch, though, is also an Achilles heel that you're going to hear about a little bit later, but there are now medications that have been designed to bind to the mutated protein and turn it off, just like turning off a light switch. And in some types of sarcoma, such as GIST, pigmented vill villonodular synovitis, uh, giant cell tumor of bone, and a dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans, a number of different sarcomas have these targets for which a therapy can be directed. Um, but um, at the end of the day, we end up with a diagnosis. The patient, um, we generally recommend understanding where and whether the tumor has spread. So we generally recommend patients have imaging of the primary tumor, often MRI. If it's within the abdomen, a CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis is generally fine. And then we uh, also um, often perform a CT chest or chest X-ray in certain types of sarcomas. For instance, um, myxoid liposarcoma, we might image a little differently because it can spread to different areas um, such as bone and um, fatty deposits. So, um, and then once we get all of the information together in terms of the diagnosis, all of the imaging, then we start meeting with our multidisciplinary team. All of the sarcoma centers you're going to hear from today have multidisciplinary sarcoma teams, which means not one expert, not two experts, but really a whole cadre of sarcoma experts that are radiologists, radiation therapists, medical oncologists, surgeons, uh, nurses, pharmacists, even laboratory scientists, and we all get together and we discuss the pathology, we look at CAT scans and MRIs, we discuss um, 
any of the mutations in the DNA that I had discussed earlier as to whether or not they – and then once we get all that information together, we come up with a treatment plan. It's really a roadmap for treatment for our sarcoma patients. And, um, you know, with that, I think I'd like to conclude my overview of sarcomas. I am certainly be available for questions later. And I think the next speaker will, um, Dr. Merriam, may be picking up where I'm leaving off. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Dr. Trent. That was outstanding and a wonderful way to start off the program today. Uh, thank you so much. Um, and we will look forward to your getting questions during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Priscilla Merriam. Dr. Merriam is physician, medical oncology, sarcoma and bone cancer treatment center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, instructor in medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Merriam is going to present a brief overview of treatment options for rare sarcomas, new treatment approaches, including clinical trials, and side effect and pain management. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Merriam. Hi. Thank you, Dr. Trent, for that tremendous overview, and thank you, Dr. Messner, for facilitating this really wonderful workshop. I'm honored to participate today with this panel of excellent experts and to have the chance to share information with everyone listening today. This workshop is uh, such an important uh, uh, um, time for people with sarcomas to learn more about their treatment options and how to interact with their treating team. Today, I will discuss an overview of the management of some of the many types of sarcomas and discuss side effect and pain management. I will also share some questions that you may wish to ask your treating team. When a sarcoma is discovered and found to be limited to one area of the body, your team may recommend surgery alone to remove the sarcoma or may recommend the addition of radiation and or chemotherapy either before or after surgery. Radiation may be used to try to decrease the chance that a tumor will grow back in the area where surgery was performed. The decision to recommend chemotherapy or radiation, either before or after surgery, will depend on factors such as the type of sarcoma you have, the location of the sarcoma, and sometimes features of your sarcoma observed on pathology review. When sarcoma is found in multiple areas of the body, medication treatments like chemotherapy may be appropriate. Chemotherapy may also be recommended for certain types of sarcomas, like osteosarcoma, Ewing sarcoma, and rhabdomyosarcoma, whether the sarcoma is in only one area of the body or in several areas. These types of sarcomas are treated with specialized chemotherapy plans. As Dr. Trent discussed, knowing the subtype of your sarcoma is critical because the type of medication recommended may vary based on your type of sarcoma. I will discuss some general approaches to treating sarcomas, but also highlight a few of the many types of sarcomas and their specific treatments. I will first review some of the well-established chemotherapy options. The first chemotherapy, doxorubicin, is generally considered one of the standard first-line medications for many types of sarcoma. Chemotherapy that includes the drug gemcitabine may also be a reasonable first medication to use. Some of the other chemotherapy drugs that are often used to treat sarcoma include trabectidin, which was approved in the United States based on a benefit seen for people with leiomyosarcoma and liposarcoma. We believe, however, there may be benefit in other types of sarcomas as well with this drug. Aribulin is another drug which was approved by the FDA for liposarcoma, but based on clinical trial results, we think that it may also benefit leiomyosarcoma and it is being evaluated as well in other types of sarcomas. 
There are other drugs that are not chemotherapy and sometimes are referred to as targeted therapies that may play an important role in treating many types of sarcomas. Pazopinib is an oral medication that can be used for patients with sarcoma who have been treated with chemotherapy. In some patients, pazopinib can slow the growth of the sarcoma. We're not sure of the benefit of pazopinib in people with liposarcoma, so it is usually not used for this type of sarcoma. Oral medications called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, including imatinib, are central to the treatment of gastrointestinal stromal tumors. Dr. Trent referred to this earlier when speaking about the KIT gene, which can be turned on in people with gastrointestinal stromal tumor, and in many of these patients, imatinib can block that, the, the switch that has caused the cancer cells to start growing in GIST. Drugs that can affect a blood's tumor, uh, tumor supply, a tumor's blood supply, excuse me, or anti-angiogenic agents like bevacizumab or pazopinib are used to treat solitary fibrous tumor. There's a class of medications called mTOR inhibitors, like a drug called avirolimus, which can be used to treat a type of sarcoma called pecoma. There are many additional examples of drugs and sarcoma subtypes where molecularly targeted therapies are used to treat rare sarcomas. I selected the ones uh, that I just discussed as some of the examples, and I, um, I found it sort of, uh, I chuckled that Dr. Trent had selected some other ones that I, uh, that I didn't have much overlap of, with, which gives you a sense of really how many types of sarcomas there are and how specific the treatments can be for various types of sarcomas. Finally, I'll discuss some uh, recent approaches to treating sarcomas with medication. There's ongoing interest in investigating whether immunotherapies like pembrolizumab may help people with sarcoma. Many clinical trials are ongoing to try to answer this question. There have been some encouraging results in treating people with alveolar soft part sarcoma with immunotherapy. There may also be some benefit in people who have di uh, the diagnosis of unclassified pleomorphic sarcoma and in certain types of liposarcoma, but this information is still preliminary. Cancer Care has an excellent workshop every year after the annual cancer meeting to review the most recently presented clinical trial results. If you're interested in learning more specifically about recent clinical trials presented, the workshop is called Highlights from the 2019 American Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Meeting, and it is available online. I'm turning over now to symptom management, um, and it's really important to know that when you're deciding which treatments to pursue, please make sure to discuss in advance with your team what symptoms you might experience. There are different potential side effects from different treatments like chemotherapy, other anti-cancer medications, radiation, or surgery. Ask if there's a team available where you're being treated of specialists in symptom management, also known as palliative care specialists, who are trained specifically in treating symptoms associated with cancer and with cancer treatments. Remember that we want to hear from you. Frequent feedback about your symptoms helps your team take better care of you. There are many approaches to symptom management, sometimes oral medications, sometimes topical treatments, sometimes injections that can block pain, and sometimes things like massage or exercise. We'll hear more about that later. Pain management tools extend beyond narcotics. Some people are concerned about needing narcotics for pain. Please don't let this hold you back from discussing your symptoms with someone expert in managing pain. For some people, non-narcotic treatments are recommended. Medicines like nerve-blocking medicines or steroids may be appropriate. 
If the pain expert recommends uh, narcotics, remember that these medications are very effective and often critical in helping people experience fewer symptoms from their cancer, allowing them to live life more fully and with ease. The pain expert providing the medication is experienced in helping you manage possible side effects of these drugs should they arise. Finally, I'll leave you with some questions that I think are important to consider asking your healthcare team. First is to ask, what kind of sarcoma do I have? As we've been hearing, different types of sarcomas may behave differently and may need different types of treatments. For example, the treatment of an osteosarcoma is very different than the treatment for a leiomyosarcoma. Dr. Wilkie will discuss after me some of the details about the care of leiomyosarcoma in particular. Uh, you can consider asking if your tumor has been examined by a pathologist experienced in diagnosing sarcomas, as Dr. Trent has uh, previously wonderfully explained. And I would make sure that, that you understand where the sarcoma is in your body and asking your, your team, what are you hoping to achieve with the recommended treatment? And finally, asking about clinical trials. You can ask if there are any clinical trials that might be right for you. Clinical trials are an important tool for improving treatment for people with sarcoma and may be an interesting option to allow you to be treated with a medicine not yet available to other people because it's not, it has not yet been approved. So I will complete, uh, conclude my remarks here and I uh, thank all of you for participating and uh, for supporting all of us in, in, as, in our passion as Dr. Um, Trent uh, stated for taking care of people with sarcoma and their families and uh, all the people that care about them. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mary. That was wonderful and, and so very informative to everybody on the call. Thank you. I know there'll be questions for you also during the Q&A. Um, thank you. Um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Breland Wilkie, and Dr. Wilkie is Associate Professor, Director of Sarcoma Translational Research, Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology, University of Colorado Anschultz Medical Campus. And Dr. Wilkie will be addressing overview of sarcoma, new treatment approaches, including clinical trial updates, and follow-up care. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wilkie. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Um, I'd like to echo um, my predecessors here by thanking you and Cancer Care and all of you today for tuning in um, for this seminar. I'm really delighted to be a part of it. So um, what I was asked to talk with you about today um, was really delving into a subtype of sarcoma called leiomyosarcoma. Um, as you've heard from Dr. Trent, uh, sarcomas are cancers, a large number of cancers, over 100 of uh, bone and soft tissue and are named and classified based on where they came from um, or uh, what type of cell they were supposed to become had they not gotten a mutation and gotten off the path. And so leiomyosarcoma is really one of the top three most common subtypes that we see in the adult population, at least, um, and it makes up about 15 to 20 percent of adult soft tissue sarcomas. So leiomyosarcoma arises from something called smooth muscle. And so this muscle is one that you don't have control of like you do if you bend your arm or, your, or lift your knee. Um, it's actually found in the walls of our organs. And so some examples of where we can find smooth muscle include the walls of our digestive tract, like our stomach. So that is what helps move our food along, um, those contractions from smooth muscle. And also um, it can be found in the walls of blood vessels. The blood vessels actually contract to carry our blood supply around our bodies, um, and so smooth muscle is important for that function. And then finally, it can be in the walls of the uterus, um, which allow for childbirth, um, as well as those pesky menstrual cramps and everything else. 
And so leiomyosarcoma occurs when there is a mutation or a mistake um, in the smooth muscle cells that turns into cancer. And so like most of our sarcomas, we're not exactly sure what triggers the formation of leiomyosarcomas. Um, And most of these tumors um, have some of the similar genetic changes that can be seen in many other types of sarcomas. And these tend to be genes that we don't have great medications for to block the specific pathways. Um, Big master controlling genes like P53, RB1, or a gene called ATRX. And so we have a lot of work uh, left to do to try to tackle um, some of the drivers of these diseases. And so um, these tumors can behave really, or can be occurring really anywhere in the body where you have smooth muscle. Um, and again, the most common ones that we see are in the uterus, um, sometimes inside the abdominal cavity, coming from those big blood vessels, um, or often the extremity as well. And so really, um, the behavior of these can be very variable. Um, and not everybody's leiomyosarcoma is going to behave the same way. Um, I have a patient right now who was diagnosed with leiomyosarcoma 12 years ago, um, and she's had surgery for three different recurrences, and only in the last year um, has the disease begun to spread. And so, the other, on the other hand, some can be much more aggressive and move more quickly. So we really need to understand the specifics of the, the exact tumor and the exact patient that we're dealing with. Um, because some of these don't necessarily need aggressive treatment right up front if they're growing very slowly or not causing a lot of problems. And so treatment for leiomyosarcoma is, um, is similar to what uh, Dr. Trent and Dr. Merriam have already laid out for you. Um, we certainly use surgery with or without radiation um, as the critical backbone for leiomyosarcomas that are localized or just in one place. Um, In general, adding chemotherapy after surgery to prevent the leiomyosarcoma from coming back is a bit more controversial um, and really depends on the location, Um, and so that's important to to discuss with your physician in your particular case. Chemotherapy is probably what we use the most for advanced disease or disease that comes back, and leiomyosarcoma actually has many different options uh, that often, or many of those drugs which have already been discussed, like doxorubicin, um, ifosfamide, decarbazine, gemcitabine and docetaxel, trabectidin, um, many of those drugs uh, can be very helpful for patients with leiomyosarcomas. Um, I also have had many patients um, who benefit from pazopinib, um, which is that chemo pill um, that Dr. Merriam was talking about. One common question I get, particularly um, for patients with uterine leiomyosarcoma, um, is whether or not hormones can be effective. The reason with this is that in the uterus, um, many of the cells have receptors uh, to pick up signals from estrogen and progesterone because of the location. And many uterine leiomyosarcomas will have those receptors as well. Um, however, uh, you know, most of my patients that have been treated with leiomyosarcoma in the uterus become much more complicated, much more complex, and they begin to depend on signals other than hormones. And so while many patients will be offered treatment with hormone-blocking drugs similar to those we use for breast cancer, um, like tamoxifen or um, arimidex, you know, in most cases we wind up having to use other drugs uh, to help control these, these tumors. And so overall, for most patients with leiomyosarcoma, there are many options, and picking the right treatment for your case really needs to be a discussion um, with your physician to determine what's the right drug for the right time based on what are our goals 
are we trying to shrink the leiomyosarcoma in order to permit a surgery to be done? Or are we really trying to hold the disease steady um, and permit the best quality of life that we possibly can for the patient? And of course, preferences uh, from patients with particular side effects are, are, are certainly important um, and critical to take into account when making these decisions. Um, so in the last couple of minutes, I'm just going to mention a little bit more about immune therapy. So immune therapy in today's world are really referring to drugs that block proteins on the surface of cancer cells, and these proteins act as don't-eat-me signals um, that shut off the immune cells. And so these drugs can block the don't-eat-me signal, and in theory, the immune system should then be able to recognize the tumor cell um, as being foreign and destroy it. And so these drugs have certainly had great benefit in many types of cancers, and as Dr. Miriam mentioned, some sarcomas are looking promising. Um, but one thing that I want to get across is that most patients with leiomyosarcoma have not been doing well or responding to immune checkpoint inhibitors by themselves. And so I do not recommend um, that people with leiomyosarcoma go forward with these drugs um, unless it's in the setting of a clinical trial. And we think that potentially um, combining immune-boosting drugs with other drugs like chemotherapy may actually help patients uh, with leiomyosarcoma more. And so one trial that I'll just mention that was presented this year at ASCO um, from Dr. Seth Pollack in Seattle combined the chemotherapy drug doxorubicin um, with the immune-boosting drug pembrolizumab. And so the leiomyo patients on that study actually did do quite well, and there's some evidence that perhaps um, they, their disease was controlled for longer than might be expected with chemotherapy alone. Uh, but this definitely needs further study. And so there are about half a dozen clinical trials right now, including immune therapy as well as chemotherapy, and I think this is really something that leiomyosarcoma patients should consider um, if you are in need of, of additional treatments in this way. And so the last thing I'll just say is that there are many, many, many doctors and scientists who are working specifically on leiomyosarcoma and how to develop new treatments. Um, with the support from the National Leiomyosarcoma Foundation, um, we actually had a meeting in Miami uh, last month where about 50 doctors and researchers from all over the United States and Europe got together, um, talked about new research directions, and showed some data that's in the works in the laboratories. And so it's, while it's important to know that this information is not quite ready for patients yet, the point is that we're all working very, very hard to try to come up with new treatments and to create more options um, and better options um, for all of you out there. And so with that, I will turn it back to Dr. Messner, and I'll be around for questions in a few minutes. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Wilkie. That was really wonderful, um, really uh, very informative and, and just wonderful and lots of energy. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is Director, Lifestyle Clinic, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Director, Mass General Cancer Center Survivorship Program, Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. O'Donnell is going to be addressing the role of physical medicine in your treatment plan physical activity and rehabilitation, and communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It really gives me great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you very much for the warm introduction. It's my pleasure to participate in this call today. Uh, I am also a medical oncologist, and um, my specialty is multiple myeloma, which actually has a lot of carryover uh, in the sarcoma world, particularly when bones are involved. But many years ago, I founded a special clinic uh, to address the lifestyle needs of cancer patients, 
Some of you may be wondering what is lifestyle medicine. It's the use of lifestyle interventions such as exercise and diet in the treatment and management of disease. It's a complementary form of medicine. And as I sat here listening to my other colleagues talk about sarcoma and the many different ways in which it can manifest itself and affect patients, I think this cancer in particular discussions of physical medicine are so relevant. And they're relevant for two reasons. One, because of the types uh, and ways that the body can be affected by the tumors, which require often radiation and surgery, which can create physical um, impairments. And also because of the nature and longevity of the therapy, the combinations of chemotherapy and radiation uh, and surgery that can be um, quite debilitating just in terms of energy and quality of life over time. Um, so I'd like to tackle both of these issues and offer some, uh, hopefully, in encouragement and options uh, that will help patients uh, really start to feel better and optimize their quality of life as they go through the treatment of their sarcomas. So uh, one of my primary interests is in exercise. Uh, exercise is really important because there are good data that show exercise improves quality of life. It is one of the few things that's been shown in randomized trials to improve cancer-related fatigue. It can decrease anxiety, improve emotional well-being, libido. It can improve uh, sleep disturbances and social functioning. And so what does the American College of Sports Medicine, the American Cancer Society, recommend? Uh, the recommendation is for 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week, so that's about 30 minutes, five days per week, uh, in addition to resistance training two times per week. That, and this may be a tall order for some patients who have not historically exercised or are going uh, through treatment, um, and so this is a this is a goal. Uh, it is not necessarily the starting out point. Uh, but the reason that I want to talk about this is just to help people uh, know that this may help them feel better and encourage patients uh, so that when you're going through these therapies or potentially suffering physical disabilities or impairments from the therapy, know that there are resources within your cancer center that I'm going to discuss. Um, whenever someone is contemplating physical activity, there are questions you should ask your oncologist or doctor. Specifically, you need to discuss if you have a heart condition or any chest pain when you exercise. If you feel dizzy or lose consciousness when you exercise, we would want you to, um, or ever having had a loss of consciousness, discuss exercise before uh, engaging in activity. If you have um, pain right now, there may be limitations to what you can do. Um, and if you're on any medicines for blood pressure uh, or have peripheral neuropathy, numbness, or tingling, these are things that you should uh, discuss with your oncologist before you engage in exercise. Uh, but once you do, or if you do have any of these limitations, there are a lot of options that are open. One of the things that most patients may not realize is that physical therapy can be prescribed. And so in my clinic, very often the people that I meet are not yet ready or not comfortable to engage in exercise on their own. Uh, some of this is due to uh, limitations in physical wellness, but sometimes there's a fear uh, of injury. Uh, other patients don't know where to start or would like some supervision so that they feel safer. Cancer can often be feel like a betrayal to the body, and patients prefer to have someone support them as they begin exercising. 
And for this, uh, patients can be prescribed physical therapy. Uh, physical therapy can be for specific problems. Uh, if there is a um, joint or a part of the body that's specifically affected uh, and there needs to be uh, exercise designed to strengthen that part of the body, physical therapy is appropriate there. However, physical therapy can also be prescribed just for uh, cancer-related fatigue and deconditioning. And this is often a great way uh, for patients to re-engage in activity, and it's also covered by insurance. There are, there are also uh, programs within the community that are free, such as the Live Strong program, which will offer patients 12-week memberships to the YMCA with a supervised trainer once per week. Um, and the Internet offers a host of uh, free resources as well. Um, but, you know, there are many ways in which... Uh, patients can meet these requirements. One of the things that we're focused on here at our hospital um, is something called prehabilitation, which is trying to get patients stronger uh, and feeling their best before they begin therapy uh, so that they'll have more reserve as they go through therapy. Uh, this is something you could also discuss with your oncologist uh, as you think about the road ahead for the treatment of your sarcoma. Um, for patients who have completed therapy but still don't feel like themselves, um, that's when we really start to think about um, how we can uh, re-engage and get uh, physical wellness back. Um, some people uh, might ask, well, what is moderate intensity exercise? Uh, that's exercise. Uh, I always like to say where you're working hard enough, you can talk and get some words in, but you couldn't sing a song if you were trying. Things like brisk walking or riding a stationary bike, uh, doing water aerobics uh, or yoga would be fall within that purview. Um, I also encourage patients to seek out classes or a, a workout buddy uh, as that is a great motivator and can really um, help patients stick with programs um, and get to another level. If you're really uh, not in a place where you're uh, quite ready to engage in exercise, the other way to frame this is to actually avoid inactivity. So if you can't be active uh, engaging in specific um, uh, modern intensity exercises, try to limit the amount that you're sedentary. There's often, particularly when people are first diagnosed, uh, this desire of loved ones to do everything for you. Um, but I would encourage you instead to try and continue your normal daily activities as much as you possibly can. Uh, small things, we all have screens and spend too much time on them, but if you can do it standing up or walking around, if you're talking on the phone, these are small things that you can do within your life that will help you uh, maintain some muscle mass um, and be active. Um, some general principles, though, are choose activities that you enjoy. Uh, it's hard to uh, make a change in your behavior patterns. It's even harder when you're doing things you don't enjoy. So there is a broad range of activities that you can engage in. Find something that really gets you motivated, whether it be a Zumba class or a dance class or, you know, a friend who you can walk with. Choose something that's sustainable. Start slowly and build up. Uh, if every day is too much, do it at least every other day. Um, Talk to your doctor. See if you can get referred. Uh, there's a lot of resources within cancer centers or within general hospitals that often go unrecognized. Um, 
And so there may be things that uh, you are not aware of that your hospital offers. Try and engage them. Uh, and if you're in the hospital, uh, many hospitals uh, will offer physical therapy when it comes to the time of discharge. However, uh, if you were to ask your nurse or team if you could engage sooner, uh, that can be a motivating factor and uh, guidance during prolonged hospitalizations. Um, at the end of the day, uh, the goal is really uh, to do as well as you can and work through each stage of your treatment uh, to ensure your best um, self and wellness uh, and ultimately improve your quality of life. Uh, those are my comments specifically uh, to exercise, and I'd be happy to discuss further at the time of questions any other uh, activity-related thoughts patients might have. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was really wonderful, and it's just a wonderful addition to this program today in terms of thinking about what people can do themselves um, just in terms of movement. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Annie Ashe. Um, and Ms. Ashe is the President of National Leomasarcoma Foundation, and she actually helped to actually choose our speakers today. And this has been a long, um, I have to say, a long dream to have this program occur, and it's, we finally have it today, and, and you're all on the call, which makes us all very happy. Um, and um, uh, Ms. Ashe will be discussing the Leomasarcoma Foundation's free programs so that you can all can access them. So I now want to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Ashe. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm so grateful to Cancer Care and to you and all the speakers who came today for the wonderful webinar for all the patients involved today. National Lyomaus Sarcoma Foundation began in 1997, founded by patients and families reaching out to each other, and we honor their legacy by continuing and amplifying the many support programs that we offer our patients that are free. We have the Cancer Connect with a clinician program where patients can uh, reach out to me to ask a question, general question, anonymously, and I can get the information to the uh, clinician and send back the answer right away to our volunteer clinician, from our volunteer clinicians in this program. We have a live chat every month. We have patients and caregivers that come every third Thursday of the month. Uh, to uh, talk with each other and share and care and provide tips on what's gotten them through their treatment phases. We have a brand new program called Families uh, Connect to encourage families to talk with each other on the phone every third Wednesday of the month. It's called Family Time, a time to heal because it is challenging possibly for families to work together to try to help the loved one that's in a challenging treatment journey. We do offer four educational programs throughout the year all around, around the United States, and it, this helps to amplify information for the patient and their families in order to be better engaged in self-advocacy and stronger partners with their oncology care teams. We also have the uh, Cancer Cell Line Project, which allows patients to directly impact research through donating tumor tissue prior to their surgery, and it goes to the Broad Institute of MIT. They grow out the cell lines, and they continue to grow the, the tumor cells so that they can gather more data from testing the drugs for repurposing drugs through the CRISPR training, CRISPR uh, screening, rather. And this really creates more data for global research initiative potential. And we also 
as Dr. Wilkie mentioned, she she and Dr. Trent are a couple of our esteemed members of the International Research Roundtable, which is trying to really focus on how we can create precision study for leiomyosarcoma that can ultimately translate into any sarcoma subtype uh, impact. And we welcome patients to please send in their perspectives and their desire for consideration for research priorities in our message board of one of our three websites that we have. www.nlmsf.org is our home website. Lyomyosarcoma.info is where we have the message board for uh, the roundtable. And we definitely welcome your input so that the researchers can know what our patients are thinking. And we have the lifestyle change, a new normal, which speaks to uh, Dr. O'Donnell's uh, subject of well-being and encouraging uh, self-care through uh, the support of the uh, inter integrated medicine community. So I thank you all so much. And please contact us anytime. We're here 24-7 for all patients. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Hachet. That was really wonderful and wonderful working with you as well. Um, I think at this point what we're going to do is um, uh, we're going to take questions because I think um, I'll say a little bit about cancer care at the end of the call, but I think we should move on and take questions because I know that there are lots of questions out there and um, we want to hear them. So I'm going to ask Norma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Some of you already are queuing up, but um, for those of you who haven't done these programs before, I want to be sure that everybody has, a, has the same playing field. So, Norma. <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Edmund E. Your line is open. Uh, yes. Um, I just wanted to uh, review a little bit my wife's experience with a liposarcoma. She was diagnosed in April of 1991, and uh, I at the time was working at the American Hospital Association in Chicago. I called around to all the major medical centers, and they said, for that, you could have a surgeon right there at Evanston Hospital in Illinois. Consulted with Dr. Saner, Stephen Saner, and we went ahead. <clears throat> he did the operation. He um, excised her tumor. She, he had to take the right kidney uh, as part of it. He had the hot lung team standing by in case, because he said they had to evacuate all her blood because of excess bleeding. Now, this is back in 1991. And did you have a question no, that you'd like to ask? This is a wonderful uh, uh, question, but did you have a specific question? The doctors, I'd like to hear the doctor's reaction to the way it was in those days to the way it is now with all the chemo drugs and immunotherapy available. And she just turned 82 years old in September. Oh, congratulations. That's wonderful. Okay, well, why don't we have um, perhaps um, Dr. Trent, do you want to start with that question? Sure. That's a, that's a great story, and I'm delighted that she's doing doing really well. And, you know, I think that the liposarcoma is, is certainly a complicated type of sarcoma, and they uh, there's different types. There's mixoid, round cell, well-differentiated, de-differentiated, and um, we know a lot more about liposarcoma than we did 28 years ago. 
Um, but still, with a primary tumor that has not spread anywhere still to this day, surgical management is really really the mainstay of therapy. We do use chemotherapy or or other agents like trabectoden at times, but um surgical resection is is the mainstay of therapy for for liposarcoma. Could I add to that as well? Yes, to, please, to, yes. In addition to um that excellent um Dr. Dertrand's uh, excellent comments that one thing um particularly if the diagnosis is liposarcoma or any time there's a sarcoma diagnosis being able to be evaluated by a surgeon with expertise in um, the, the removal of sarcomas is really critical. I know that sometimes we'll see individuals who have a, a type of liposarcoma called D-differentiated liposarcoma, which may be also accompanied by uh, another type of liposarcoma, uh, well-differentiated liposarcoma. These are often uh, arise together or uh, one can develop out of the other. And uh, surgeons who may not see as many of these types of tumors may not know the extent to which they need to um, to uh, remove to try to get all of the tumor out. Uh, and actually, it's I was very interested to hear the the wonderful story about um, uh, sorry about your wife's story because in fact we do often still end up needing to remove the kidney, for example, and and uh, other organs to that, uh, make sure that we're really getting as uh, complete a surgery as possible. So in some ways, your wife's story might actually still be a recommendation today that uh, a sarcoma surgeon with expertise would take a look at uh, the scans carefully and make that, that recommendation. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, our next question, Norma. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Again, thank you so much, Carolyn Messner. This is really very good. Thank you. My question is, as a registered nurse and licensed social worker, I had a very good friend in 1994 who did have leiomyosarcoma, but it was in the uterus, and she didn't make it. She only lived there two years, but my, she was only in her 30s. But my questions are, I, she was, they were told the family that the leiomyosarcoma, if it was not in the uterus at that time, if it was in the arm, she would have had a much better chance and I'm wondering how stress was involved, because she's extremely stressed at that time, and the genetics, which we talked about, because her parents had cancers, both of them, breast and uh, father had pan uh, prostate, but there was also toxic mold in the house. So my question is about the genetics, if the sisters should be, and how they could be tested, uh, you know, with the genetics, with the mutations, if that's possible now. You said you talked about that, and also how stress was involved. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you very much, um, uh, Stephanie, for that question. Um, Dr. Miriam, do you want to address that question? Uh, actually, um, uh, Dr. Wilkie, do you want to take a stab at that? Okay. Just because okay. I was just Dr. speaking. Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Wilkie, sorry. <laughs> yes, Dr. Sure, Wilkie. no problem. Um, so great question. And again, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that uh, that hurt. she didn't do as well as we would have hoped. Um, but basically, the two questions you ask about um, testing, genetic testing, so in general, most sarcomas are not associated with a known inherited syndrome. Um, there's a couple of key exceptions, um, something called Lee-Fraumini, which is where uh, mutations are inherited uh, in P53, but usually that has a very strong family history, multiple generations of early breast cancer, multiple sarcomas, as well as some other types of cancer. 
And so, again, without knowing every detail, you know, it sounds, from what you told me, pretty unlikely that hers was related to to a genetic inherited syndrome. And so normally we would not recommend additional family members being tested. But, you know, we would need to get some further information before we could say that for sure. And then as far as stress or toxic mold, I mean, unfortunately, you know, we don't have great understanding of what triggers sarcomas apart from a couple of key things like radiation exposure in the setting of breast cancer, for example. Um, Mold in general has not been associated uh, with sarcomas that I'm aware of. And stress, although we know that, you know, that stress over long-term certain and, and, you know, problems with our, you know, with our emotional state and things like that can certainly make us have a weaker immune system and more uh, prone to cancer development to begin with. There's some evidence in mice that that may be the case. Um, you know, think about how much stress is in everyone in the world or, you know, how many people eat certain diets. I mean, overall, um, because sarcomas are so rare, it can't be enough to just simply have one eliciting factor. Otherwise, we'd see a lot more sarcoma across the population, in my opinion. Oh, Thanks thank for you. your question. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and we have another question from our online participants for Dr. O'Donnell. Regarding resistance exercises, what do I need to consider with a barred metaport? So that's a that's a great question. I, you're referring to a, a port for venous access. Uh, it really depends on uh, the degree of limitation of your um, limb, if there's any restrictions in terms of uh, mobility of your arm. Um, sometimes we'll have patients see physical therapists just to get a sense of if there are any adhesions around uh, the port that can be uh, massaged out, which would increase range of motion. Uh, if there is any limitation in the shoulder joint, there are some, when you get your port placed, there are sometimes restrictions to things such as push um, uh, that you're discouraged from doing. I would adhere to those recommendations. In general, when we think about the purpose of strength exercises, one of the greatest problems we see, particularly as patients age uh, or on high-dose steroids or go through long periods of uh, treatment, is loss of lean muscle mass. And what that most affects is patients' gait, putting them at fall risk. So as you think about the activities to focus on, if you have limitations due to either uh, areas that have received radiation, surgery, or portacath in place, Uh, you really want to focus on the core stability muscles in your abdomen and the long muscles of your legs to build strength, which will ensure uh, more stability as you walk or rise from chairs. So even if you have some limitations, uh, the prime muscle groups that we often focus on are those uh, that ensure safe walking. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's excellent. uh, so, um, and our next question comes from one of our online participants, um, and this would be for um, for Dr. Trent. Um, my husband has pleomorphic sarcoma that has spread to lungs. What happens if surgery doesn't help or he can't do surgery? If you could answer that, um, Dr. Trent, in a general way, um, or yeah. questions that might be helpful. Yes, thank you. Yeah, sure. When um, when um, any type of sarcoma, pleomorphic sarcoma or otherwise spreads, then um, we have to think of treatments that can go throughout the body. And generally, um, that would include 
such as some of the items you heard from Dr. Merriam today, such as chemotherapy, but also targeted therapies as well that we had we had touched on. Um, so that's generally the approach. Sometimes radiation can be used or radiofrequency ablation as a localized procedure if there is a small number that could be treated that way. But generally we start thinking about um, therapies, whether oral or IV, that can go throughout the whole body. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. I hope that's helpful. Um, and um, and we have another question from one of our um, online participants. Um, and this question would be for um, uh, for Dr. Wilkie. Um, let's see. Um, can you help me understand histiocytic sarcoma I have been diagnosed with and treated in May of this year? Um, sure. So histiocytic sarcoma is a really rare subtype and, and actually crosses the boundaries between a blood cancer and a sarcoma. Um, so for that histology in particular, it's really, really important to make sure it's been reviewed um, at an expert center because not uncommonly um, those will get misclassified. And so the treatment actually can be very different. Some of these we start using um, lymphoma or blood cancer type treatment regimens rather than sarcoma regimens. Um, there's a few of them that do have specific genetic abnormalities or mutations that might be able to be targeted um, with, with chemotherapy pills. And so um, overall, I, this is a really challenging group. There's three or four uh, subtypes that kind of fall into that niche. So the biggest thing is, is really getting uh, expert consultation. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, and uh, this is a question for Dr. Miriam. Um, are there any, uh, this is from our online participants, are there any treatment plan other than surgery for a DNA germline deficient SDHB that results in GIST tumors? Sure. So, uh, it, of course, uh, thank you for the question. Um, uh, it really depends for each person on the, the status of their uh, their GIST. Uh, these are often cancers that are seen um, more commonly in younger people. Uh, we think of this um, uh, as something that um, if it's a, a localized tumor, uh, then we're going to try to remove surgically. Uh, and typically we'll then um, consider observation for people in whom the cancer has uh, spread. Uh, that's when we're thinking about using different targeted medications, uh, and there are. Um, we're also trying to develop new clinical trial options for this type of, of GIST in particular. Um, one thing that's important is uh, uh, you highlighted the um, the point that there may be a genetic component to this, and for individuals with this diagnosis, uh, getting connected to genetic counseling is important because people with this diagnosis may be at uh, risk for development of other types of growths in their bodies. Uh, so uh, working together with a multidisciplinary team, uh, certainly with sarcoma expertise, but also with genetic, um, uh, uh, genetic counseling expertise is, is really critical. Yeah, I'd just like to add one yeah. thing One thing to that, and there is a, a National Cancer Institute initiative to help with individuals who have SDH deficient just, and it can be found at the National Cancer Institute's website if you search for for um, pediatric and wild-type just. 
Excellent. Um, and that website is uh, cancer.gov. Um, they also have a live chat feature um, as well. Um, said, um, you can post a question, and one of their information specialists will get back to you, so there's a lot of nice options for you. And I've been asked by one of our participants to just mention another um, 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 sarcoma organization, Leoma Sarcoma Support and Direct Research Foundation, and we'll include information about that group as well in your evaluations when you get all the information about the program today. And the evaluation isn't just an evaluation, although we appreciate your filling it out. It also includes all the resources that are mentioned in today's program. Well, I actually want to thank our speakers. You've just been phenomenal. Um, and I want to thank our participants because you really asked <clears throat> such incredible questions. <clears throat> that really enhances our program today. Um, and I do um, want to um, actually uh, invite all of you to participate in, our, in a polling exercise of just two brief questions. And then I will say a few words about cancer care and wrap up the program. So I'm now going to turn this program over to, to um, Norma, who actually will um, uh, will lead you in, the, in these questions. And again, this will help us as we plan future programs. So your feedback is really important to us. So Norma, if you Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain on the line. We would like to conduct a second brief polling session. Uh, once the question and responses are read, we ask that you choose the appropriate response using your telephone keypad. Do you plan to call your doctor for information about your pathology report? Press 1 for yes or 2 for no. One moment while we tabulate the results. And our next question, do you plan to call your doctor to help in managing your side effects and pain? Press one for yes or two for no. One moment while we tabulate the results. And back to you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and thank you all for participating in the poll. That's really important. And um, we so appreciate your, your feedback and your, your responses to our questions. Um, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care so you do know of us as a resource. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we do provide a host of psychosocial support, free services to all of you on the call. Um, and we provide help to people living with um, rare sarcomas and all types of cancers and um, out there. Um, so we offer um, financial and practical assistance. We have a copay foundation. We also do provide counseling services, both on the telephone and online, telephone support groups, online support groups, individual counseling. We also have a Cancer Care for Kids program to help children understand when there's cancer in the family in terms of coping with that. Um, so we have a lot of different programs and services, and you can uh, go to our website, www.cancercare.org, or contact, contact us at 1-800-813-4673. Now, um, most importantly, as we're soon to conclude the program today, we don't want any one of you to leave this program feeling that you're alone. We know that you all sometimes feel alone, but we want you to know that these, there are lots of services out there. There are many sarcoma organizations out there. Um, you've heard about some of them today. Um, they're listed on, on the program as well. And there are a number of cancer organizations as well that can help you. Um, and it's okay in this situation to have as many places helping you for free as possible. And of course, your healthcare team. For those of you who still have questions and didn't get to answer them, I do want you to know that you actually certainly can um, 
you know, um, take advantage of all the services out there. Um, it's okay to do that. It, it helps. The more, the better. Some have, some offer some services, some offer others. Um, so again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.